the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the voice of the Lord. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, and say to it, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. A prophecy that the prophet Ezekiel shared. Something so unbelievable. And we're going to get to that in a moment. On the evening of April 14, 1912, radio operators on the RMS Titanic received the message that they were heading toward a dangerous ice field. But the Titanic was unsinkable, so why worry? Later that evening, a radio operator from a nearby ship also sent a message to the Titanic warning about the heights fields. One of the Titanic's radio operators answered via Morris code, Shut up, shut up, I'm busy. I think you know the rest. Of the story. Why do we ignore warnings until it's too late? It was too late for Judah. God had sent warning after warning that was ignored. And Judah was basically giving God the message shut up, shut up, I'm busy. Oh. Have you ever said to your kids, probably not, just in my family, if you do that one more time, I will ground you for life. No, seriously, ground you for life. Is that even possible? You know, but, but it comes out of our, our mouths. And, and then, of course, your very obedient child looks at you and does exactly the same thing. And then you say, wait a minute, I mean it. I mean it. One more time. 
This time, because all of your kids do that, they listen. Oh, and you take a deep breath. But let me ask you a question here. Why didn't you punish them the first time after the warning? You gave them a chance to repent, yet they crossed the line. You literally hated the thought of following through on your threat. All you ever wanted to do was to enjoy their company and set them up well for life. You know, God, our perfect Father, must feel that way sometimes. God used his prophets to faithfully warn his kids. In today's text, you're going to see that God uses Ezekiel and Jeremiah in a last-ditch effort to get through to his kids. But Israel doesn't listen. So God's threat actually becomes a reality. There's great defeat and humility. You see, God did not exile the Jews primarily to punish them. That's what some of us may think. God never has been, nor is he now interested in punishment for punishment's sake. Punishment is given to bring his people to a place of repentance and humility before him so they could enjoy relationship and life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your, your relentless love for each one of us. Father, uh, time and time again, you warned Israel, and then you warned Judah. But time and time again, you warn us. You desire deeply a relationship with us that will give us abundant life now, and so we can enjoy the blessings of eternity. But God, we, well, we stop. We do our own thing. We go our own way. And sometimes we're not as arrogant as the Titanic Morris Code operator. But realistically, we are. We come before you, God, as we open up your word that we would ask that the Holy Spirit would be so active in our lives that you would use these words, your words, to change us and to convict us and to encourage us. We pray for all those others, Father, in this area that are teaching and preaching your word. We pray for Fox Lake Community Church and New Hope Church and House of Prayer. We pray, dear God, that you would encourage those folks as they hear your word and are transformed by it. Lord, I even think this moment of all of our workers downstairs who are teaching our children, caring, our chil caring for our children, who are sharing with them God's powerful word in a way that they can understand. I think of Sue Kirshner and Melissa and Jocelyn Helton. I think of Selena Albert and Paola. I pray, Father, for Michelle Paulson and Kylie. 
I pray for Dana and for Sherry. And thank you for Carrie. Lord, these are all people who are serving you faithfully below sea level. And we thank you for them. For these next few minutes, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us, we are looking at the story. It started in the garden, and, and we are, well, maybe not for some of you, but moving through the Old Testament into the New Testament. We started in Genesis, we're going to end up in Revelation, and we're trying to get a big picture of who this God is. An amazing God, a wonderful God, a God, though, that does confuse us at times, a God that we don't understand at times. Well, in these past weeks, we saw that Samaria, the northern ten tribes, were a little bit more evil than the lower two tribes of Israel. In Samaria, it fell in 722 because of their sin and their idolatry. Well, Judah, the two more righteous tribes, weren't that much more righteous. They followed Israel's pathway of disobedience. And there were the kings of Hezekiah and Manasseh and Ammon. And we've talked a little bit about those kings. But right now, in Judea, there is a glimmer of hope. A king comes on the scene by the name of Josiah, and I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 22. And this is, well, what the scriptures say. I'm going to start at verse 1 and reading through verse 2. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidah the daughter of Adiah from Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, and he followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what is right. Eight-year-old Josiah comes on the scene and begins to please God. Now, again, I don't know how many of you had kids. I don't know how many of you have hung around with eight-year-olds. But I'm pretty sure I have never, ever, 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 ever met an eight-year-old that I'd like to be king of my country. All right? I don't. Every once in a while, you may see a glimmer of wisdom. Very, very once in a while. All right? But an eight-year-old. I started thinking through that. Wow, what would make an eight-year-old follow God with all their heart? I would assume a mom and a dad. One that cared a whole lot about the kingdom. One that cared a whole lot about who God was. And to make sure that they understood God. And I'm sure over and over and over as this king was making decisions, well, somebody who was quite spiritual sat down with him and said, well, Josiah, maybe we should do it this way. Or Josiah, the Bible says this, or the scriptures tell us this. Well, well, let's, let's trust God here. 
And whatever happened, it was pretty cool. You know, we prayed for our workers downstairs. We know that parenting is a tough, tough, well, privilege and opportunity. And that there's a whole lot of people as we watch our kids grow up that need to be influenced by godly men and women. And we have that privilege not only in our Sunday ministries where that environment's amazing, but we have youth ministries on Sunday nights and Monday nights and Wednesday nights where we have leaders come together encouraging kids to listen to God even at eight years old. If that isn't a shot in the arm for every youth ministry person and every mom or dad, you can make a difference with an eight-year-old, helping them and guiding them and strengthening them so that they will follow God with their whole heart. You know what's really cool, and some of you have been reading along with us, but, but honestly, this is so amazing. I know I say that a lot, but this is amazing. Eventually, King Josiah gets to be 26 years old. By the time he's 26, my guess is if he's going to go off the rail, he's going to go off the rail here. All right? He's not listening to anybody anymore. He's making his own decisions. He's, he's following God the best he can. But the scriptures tell us just a little bit later in chapter 22 that King Josiah restores the temple. Let me tell you the story. The temple was getting redone, a facelift, okay? Because it was important, because at least in that culture, that is where God dwelt. So they're rebuilding this temple. Look at 2 Kings, starting at verse 8. Hilkiah the high priest, said to Shephan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah said or gave the scroll to Shephan, and he read it. Shephan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and the supervisors at the temple. In other words, the building project's going just great. In verse 10, then he told the king, Helicah, the priest, has given me a scroll. So Shephan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Jump to verse 13. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. Now again, what actually was discovered? The very minimal is probably the book of Deuteronomy. But it could have been the whole first five books of the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, well, it wasn't even known at that time. 
They're cleaning up the place. They find this scroll. One person starts reading. Another person starts reading. The king gets it. And the king all of a sudden hears these words. He rents his clothes. And he's appalled. He goes, we're not listening. I want to obey God. You've told me to obey God. But apparently I'm not doing some things that God would bring you honor. And the scriptures tell us that really King Josiah goes bananas. Look at chapter 23, starting at verse 1. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, all the priests, all the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read them the entire book of the covenant that was found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all of his commands, laws, and decrees. (laughs) Puberty. Um, all with his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written on the scroll, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. He's got everybody there. He's reading it. It's probably the book of Deuteronomy, if you can read it at one sitting. And he's going through this, and the people are listening, and he's committing himself. He's committing his leadership. He's committing the people, and the people are responding. Josiah was convicted. He reads it to everyone. And then, no kidding, look at the rest of chapter 22. I'm just going to read some highlight sections. I will encourage you to read this at home. But if you would, I'm going to go fast. Because King Josiah is like a whirlwind right now. He looks over his kingdom and he sees there's corruption everywhere. Remember, he's been leading the kingdom since eight years old. He's 26. All right? Thinking again, life is okay. I'm doing what God wants. Oh, my word. I'm sorry. Chapter 23. Chapter 23. And we're going to start at verse 4. And again, shoot through this chapter. But here it goes. All right? He told the high priest to remove the lords uh, from the temple all the articles that were used to worship Baal. Remember, as we've gone through this, it wasn't so much that Israel hadn't stopped worshiping Jehovah, but Israel was worshiping the Baals and Asherah along with Jehovah. They were doing both. He's saying, hey, we're going to remove these things. The king had all these burned outside of Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley. And he carried the ashes away to Bethel. He did away, verse 5, with the idolatrous priests who had been appointed by previous kings of Judah. For they had offered the sacrifices at the pagan shrines throughout all of Judah and even the vicinity of Jerusalem. Verse 6, the king removed the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple and took it outside Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley, where he burned it. Verse 7, he also tore down the living quarters of the male and the female shrine prostitutes that were inside the temple of the Lord. Um, Verse 8, 
Um, Josiah brought to Jerusalem all the priests that were living in the other towns, but what he did, again, verse 10, he defiled the altar of Topath in the valley of Ben-Hanam. No one could ever use it again to sacrifice a son or a daughter in fire as an offering to Moloch. He removed the entrance from the Lord's temple, the horse statues that the former kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. A little bit further, the king also burned the chariots that were dedicated to the sun. Verse 12, Josiah tore down the altars that the king of Judah had built on the palace roof. The king destroyed the altars that Manasseh had built in the two courtyards. Verse 13, the king also desecrated the pagan shrines. Verse 14, he smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. In verse 15, the king also tore down the altar at Bethel. He burned the shrine and burned the Asherah pole. Verse 19, then he demolished all the buildings at the pagan shrines in the towns of Samaria. Verse 24, he also got rid of the mediums and the psychics and the household gods, the idols, and every kind of detestable practice, both in Jerusalem and throughout all of Judea. Then he ends up in verse 24 and 25. He did this in obedience to the laws written in the scroll that Helkiah, the priest, had found in the Lord's temple. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. I'm going to stop for a moment. An eight-year-old who knew right from wrong, who knew Jehovah the best he could, probably from traditions, but raised to have reverence, to fear God. He opens up the Scriptures, and he is appalled. He's convicted. He absolutely sees the sin throughout all the land. And he goes crazy. To me, Josiah was a hero. He read God's word. He obeyed and responded to God's word. He saw God's word was powerful and life-giving. God's word changes us and changes our environment. I'd like to pause here just for a second. This is what God's Word does. We're going to talk a little bit more about it as we move on. But if you take up God's Word, and you read your verse for a day, or chapter for a day, that's all good. And if we put that back down or put it back on the shelf and nothing happens, something's wrong. If if you're not convicted, if you're not encouraged, 
If you're not and you can put... You're not reading God's Word. You're reading some nice literature. You see, the Holy Spirit, as we pick up this amazing book, begins to teach us. Because there's ways that we're thinking poorly. And maybe convicting us in areas that we're blind to. And encouraging us to do some of the most radical things in the whole world because God said to. You see, if God's word doesn't change us, we need to read God's word differently. I'm not saying that every time that you read God's word, you rent your clothes. But when was the last time that you picked this up and you were so overwhelmed by God's grace that tears started to flow? When were you last time convicted so you fell down on your knees and you confessed your sin as an abomination unto God because of your attitude or because of how you treated somebody or the words that you had said? Well, say, Rick, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not that emotional kind of guy. I get it. But that's what God's Word does. It feeds us and strengthens us and encourages us. And that's what happened in Josiah. You know what's so sad is what followed were some evil kings. You would have thought again, Josiah and, and how he was reared and, and why, why couldn't you pass this on? But there was, again, a bunch of J kings. Jehoiaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah. And all of them were more evil than the one before. So God raises up the superpower Babylon to bring the Jews to a place of repentance and humility. Babylon surrounds Jerusalem, flexes its muscles, and exercises its power by systematically deporting the Jews. The first wave of deportation happens in 605 B.C. That's not too important, except next week it will be, because that's when Daniel and his friends were taken away to Babylon. We're going to look at Ezekiel in just a little bit. Ezekiel was taken in the second wave in 597. But Jerusalem falls, and the temple is destroyed in 586. It's done. It's burned. It's annihilated. Look with me to the prophet Ezekiel. And we're going we're gonna to go there, and I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. But I'd like to give you a big picture first. Ezekiel is 30 years old when he begins his ministry. And literally, he is living in Babylon, we find out, with the exiles along the Kiber River. And so he's not even in Jerusalem. He got taken away in the 597 year. He was brought to the rest, with the rest of the Jewish settlers living among them. 
God continued to plead with the Jews all the way until Jerusalem fell in 586. God used Ezekiel to reveal himself and his message to the Hebrews. Ezekiel, if you read through that book, uses words directly from God in street theater to get his message across. He has visions, odd visions, as you read through this. But the scariest of all of his visions is when God leaves Jerusalem. Oh, they thought it would never happen. They thought God would maybe give more warnings. But Ezekiel sees God leaving. In the last 14 chapters, Ezekiel focuses on the future of Israel, the nations, and even creation. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I'd like to start reading at verse 22. All right? Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the Sovereign Lord. I am going to bring you back. Remember, people have been deported. They've lost their homes. They're living in Babylon. And this is the message. I'm going to do it to protect my holy name, on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you, before your very eyes, says the Sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, for I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. I will give you a new heart and put in a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, response, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so you will follow my decrees and you will be careful to follow my regulations. Following this chapter is chapter 37, which we started off with. An unbelievable promise. Ezekiel, just like there's going to be a field filled with bones, dry bones. No hope for these bones. I want you to know that I'm going to breathe my spirit into these bones someday. In fact, not every time the prophet gives the um, interpretation, but I'm going to read chapter 37, starting at verse 11. Then he said to me, God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All our hope is gone. The nation is finished. Therefore, prophesize to them. Tell them, right there, those people. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will give I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O oh my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, the pretty discouraged lot lost everything living along a river because of their disobedience. 
And they're hearing, wait a minute, God isn't going to abandon us. Not going to abandon us. We're going to again have life. Then there was Jeremiah. He stayed and remained in Jerusalem. He also was a priest, all right, but he was a prophet, and he preaches from Jerusalem. This is, again, quite a wonderful book. Jeremiah is called by God very young to be a prophet, and he starts his career at about 30 years old again. Pretty odd, but that's about when rabbis would either become a rabbi or priests would start practicing. It was about 30 years old. And what would happen at this moment, as God called him, he simply said this. He says, I am going to have you be my prophet to the people who are left back here at Jerusalem. They're kind of the rejects, just so you know. They're the lame. They're the ones that, oh, can't really make the trip to Babylon. They're the under-resourced. But I want you to give them my message of hope. But I also want you to know, Jeremiah, I want to warn you, no one is going to listen to you. I'm sure as soon as Jeremiah heard that, he started scratching his head and going, so you want me to preach, you want me to teach, but not even one person is going to respond. Correct. That's exactly right. So the book of Jeremiah is, well... Jeremiah's preaching of about 20 years that nobody obeyed, not even one. Chapters 1 to 24 are all messages given before the first exile. All right? He's preaching his heart out. Messages of God's love, but God's coming judgment. In Jeremiah chapter 2, starting at verse 13, he's told right away to go and let the people know. And these are powerful verses. Jeremiah 2, or verse, verse 13. Tell them this. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned in me the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. You hear me talk about this over and over we're not only children of Israel, but even today, that, that we try to find life other than in Jesus. We abandon Jesus. We try the latest things and whatever it is, but there's no satisfaction. And we try to quench our thirst from other things. But the scriptures are so clear is that you pour your water into cracked cisterns, and you are not refreshed. So Jeremiah, again, sadly, focuses on um, the broken covenant and adds a result all the different injustices that are happening. The turning point in the book of Ezekiel is chapter 25, where God finally says, it's done, Babylon is coming. So in chapter 26, what happens is that God brings a message of hope. God always brings a message of hope. He is a God of grace. He he wants us. He wants them to enjoy life. He does. And it's all about a relationship. 
Jeremiah knows it's too late for the arrogant and the disobedient. Jeremiah shares the hope that people will not abandon, or that God will not abandon his kids. He will someday renew his covenant. Let me give you some facts of chapters 26 through 33. Jeremiah says this. You guys are going to live in Babylon for about 70 years. You might as well build a house. You might as well plant gardens. You have disobeyed God, and as a result, you are going to live in a foreign land. So go ahead. Do the best you can. Marry, bury, live life here. You are sowing what you're reaping, okay? Make it your temporary home. But what I want you to know, Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11, I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you, says Jeremiah to these folks, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. This verse is often used out of context, folks. I'm just letting you know. If you've ever graduated, there's plaques all over. Oh, you're going to high school. I want you to know that God has great plans for you. You're going to college. I want you to know God has great plans for you. And I'm pretty sure God does have great plans. But what we don't understand are the next few verses. Why does God have great plans for the children of Israel? Just because they're disobedient? No. But let me again point this out. It's because in those days, you are going to have a relationship. You are going to seek me and I will respond when you pray. We're going to talk, you're going to pray, you're going to listen. And because of that, your future is going to be awesome. So if you're going to write a letter to graduates, include the bottom part, is all I'm saying. Say, God is going to do some amazing things for your future. But I want you to know he's going to do some amazing things for your future if you walk with him. If you have a relationship with him. If you listen to him, then you are going to have an amazing future. Not a trouble-free future. Not pain and, uh, free of pain and anguish. But I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be there with you. Well, in chapters 34 to 52. Whoa. Jeremiah documents Jerusalem's last few days. The warnings were ignored, even to the extent of King Jehoiakim. Let me paint the picture. Go to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36. The scriptures tell us it was winter in Israel, whatever that means. It was a little colder. And the king was sitting in front of the fire. And he had just been given Jeremiah's scroll. Because God told him to give the king the scroll. And Jehoiakim was sitting there warming himself by the fire. And one of his, well, People begin to read the book of Jeremiah or the scroll of Jeremiah to him. And as he read a line or two, he would cut the scroll 
and toss it in the fire. He would read a little bit more of God's prophecy. He'd cut the scroll and toss it in the fire. Read a little more. Cut the scroll and toss it in the fire till all of Jeremiah was burned up. In chapter 36, verse 24, look what the scripture says. Neither the king nor his attendants showed any signs of fear or repentance of what they heard. Are you serious? Well, do do you mean that king was so arrogant? That he was so godless? That he would take God's word? He would read it and then just fling it into the fire? You know, I gotta stop there. Because in great judgment and, and, and how horrific this is, we, we shudder, oh, what, what kind of an evil man is this? Again, I wonder if there haven't been times I'm not even going to say wonder. I know. I know there have been times that I have looked at God's Word. He has taught me. He has showed me. He has convicted me. And I said, and went on. Because I didn't like what he said. Or I was smarter than him that day. We can be really judgmental as Christians when some of us are doing the same thing. In 586, Jerusalem falls a cataclysmic event in history. Lamentations, if you read through that part, it's five chapters all about lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. It just rips your heart out. Things are pretty desperate right now. The only people left in burnt out, destroyed Jerusalem are a few of the rejects of society. Everyone else is out. Their lives are completely different. And for 70 years, God is going to get their attention. Didn't have to be that way. Hey, there's some icebergs. No problem. Hey, there's some icebergs. Shut up. I'm busy. God loves us. He sent his son to die in our place so we might experience relationship and we might be able to take his word and listen and apply Don't think ever we know more than our loving 
God. Hey, there's some hope. It's pretty desperate. But in the next four weeks, we're going to go over Daniel and Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah. But five weeks from today, we are going to focus on the Messiah, the promised Savior that comes, that's going to establish His reign. The story, again, doesn't end here. And God is relentless in loving and pursuing and forgiving. He wants us desperately to be able to listen to him and to have relationship with him. That message is the same today. And it's all because of God's grace. We end our time each time looking at the upper story and the lower story. What can we learn about God in the upper story? Well, we learn that God's timing is best. We think that sometimes we're getting away with something, right? Oh, well, I lied before and it didn't really matter. Hey, I haven't forgiven that person before. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm still doing okay, right? Folks, may God give each one of us unbelievable fear of Him. And just because God is slow in working doesn't mean He's not working. God is faithful. And God is just. And God is loving. And all is amazing. The lower story, God desires a relationship with us. God's word is so life-giving. Really, one of the things we want to encourage you, if you're not in God's word, if, if this isn't so critical for you, if you, this is not a love letter that you can hardly wait to get to every day, would you meet with us? Would we help you on this journey? Don't just look at this casually, please. It's amazing. My guess is that some of us are ignoring the warning, though. We're too busy. Shut up, God. But I want to push just a little bit before I close in prayer. I bet you've got people around you in your life, in your neighborhood, that are ignoring God's warning. People that don't know Jesus. Maybe some folks that, that are part of God's family and just walking away. I don't know. But that's why we're here on this planet. Maybe your name isn't Jeremiah or Ezekiel. I don't think anyone's here by that name. But maybe you're just plain old Rick. And God says, hey, I've got a message of grace. <laughs> There's people dying right on West Harbor Drive. Rick, would you be light and salt? Would you point them to me? Because I love them. And I want a relationship with them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the opportunity we have to be reminded again of how passionate you are 
I know I don't deserve that, God. I know that. But I thank you. I thank you for loving us so much that you sent Jesus to the cross so that my debt could be paid. We pray, Father, that that would never get old. We pray that your word would become more and more and more precious. We pray, Father, that we would be relentless in our obedience, not in our disobedience. And we would never take your word casually, but we would listen. Oh, Father, that we would listen. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.